Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining online. And please be gracious as we have to figure out how to do church again a new way. So we had just kind of gotten comfortable live streaming only. And now we have live streaming plus the whole house. And uh, it's exciting. And truly, saints, I do believe that uh, we will be back to normal church soon. I think that it is wise to uh, maintain the safety measures that we can, and let's be faithful in believing that uh, this too shall pass. Amen? Amen. Well, we want to jump into the message. We are continuing the, or finishing the series, Living Exiled, Lessons from James, remembering that James was written to the church that was scattered because, um, for many reasons, but many of them were scattered because of persecution. And um, like the early Christians, we have faced uh, an upheaval of our world because of the pandemic and, and other things, uh, the terrible tragedy of racism that we've ex uh, seen and uh, watched from a distance by uh, the news reports and social media of what happened to Mr. Floyd in Minnesota and in the subsequent writings. Um, you know, my heart goes out to the families involved, as well as the, the uh, law enforcement officers and their families who are uh, experiencing almost an equal and opposite uh, uh, pushback and, and, and prejudice against them. Just, uh, I know personally a few police officers that are fearful for their lives because of the reaction. And I believe it's interesting that... Today's message is James chapter 5, and I'd come up with this outline before, and of course it was written a couple thousand years ago, but the, um, the three uh, main topics or points that this uh, chapter deals with, the first is justice, and the second is patience, and the third is prayer. So chapter 5 is really broken into three sections, one about justice, one about patience, and one about, and the last one on prayer. And so we're going to take a look at this uh, text, this chapter, and, and focus on those three topics. So let's begin by reading uh, verse 1 through 6 of chapter 5 from James. And this is the uh, section that really deals with justice. Uh, he uses the uh, injustice of economic or financial inequality as the example, but it applies to every form of injustice that people suffer in life. It says, look here, you rich people. I like that. Hey, you rich people. <laughs> Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. Kind of radically goes against the idea the guy who dies with the most wins, doesn't it? In fact, it would say the ones who die with nothing are best positioned. The principles and the economy of heaven are opposite to the economy of the world. Let's read on. Verse 4. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. 
The wages you have held back cry against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Well, that's a very strong word, and James is like uh, some of the Old Testament prophets who, are, uh, who writes and speaks very uh, directly and confrontational uh, about uh, uh, living uh, inappropriate, living uh, lives that do not reflect the character of God. And it starts out, it says, hey, you rich people. So who is this referring to? Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. If you, to be counted as the top 1% of income makers in the United States, just us, if you want to use that term, if you're an American, uh, American, in the U.S., you would need to make $421,926 a year. How many qualified? Yeah, if you raise your hand, I'm going to be checking your tithe. (laughs) (laughs) So surely it must be those people, those people making a half a million or more a year, you know. But in our day, today, if you evaluate the rich people, the top 1% of income makers based on the whole world, everyone that's alive today, regardless of the country of origin, the top 1% would be any household that makes above 32000 Wow. 32,000. You're in the top 1% in the world. You are more wealthy than 99% of humans. So even if you make 20 or 24 or 25,000, which in our uh, day is, is po- in, in America, that's a poverty level, you are in the 1%. And you add on to that things like running water, where in many of the countries I go to, you cannot drink the water that comes out of the tap. You have to buy it or else you could get sick and die. And so that's a luxury that we have. The fact that just about everywhere we go, we have unlimited electricity without even thinking about it. We are wealthy beyond comprehension. Not only to all of those in the world alive today, but to all of those that have lived in previous generations. Kings and emperors of years ago would look at your life and be undone by the level of luxury and pleasure and entertainment that you have for virtually nothing. Saints, if you are blessed to live in this country, you need to be grateful and recognize that we are the rich that this verse is speaking about. Wealth in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, throughout Scripture, it's counted a blessing. So don't take on the the wrong attitude or the idea that money in and of itself is evil or wicked or having wealth is bad. No, many, many people in Scripture that are heroes. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Solomon was extremely wealthy. King David was extremely wealthy. Um, And so wealth in and of itself isn't uh, the issue. It's how we use the wealth that we have that's important. 
much more important than how much we have. The issue is not wealth, but justice. Okay? Justice. Equity. How are we treating people who may have less than us or are different than us? Because it says the cries of the workers cheated of their pay have reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Wow. Unjust wages and mistreatment of laborers. Injustice of any kind is something God takes personally. And He takes it very seriously. The issue with justice that we need to be concerned about, or certainly much more concerned about than the injustice we see in the world, is the injustice we have in our own hearts. And it's right to be upset when we see things that are evidently unfair, even evil or wicked in our world. But the only way to really bring about change is to begin with your own heart and to root out any form of injustice that is in you. And then, one by one, convince others to find the source of mercy, that mercy that triumphs over judgment through the relationship with God, through the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one that enables us to be free. God himself, it says, will bring justice to those who have lived in luxury at the expense of those working in unfair pay or labor conditions. All right, so this is not a political issue. Everybody wants to go to politics because they think politics will help. All right, <laughs> let me give you the inside scoop. After many decades of, of, of watching, and, and I was active and inactive to a certain degree, politics will never solve the problem because it's a heart issue. And there's injustice in every political system. And thank God we have a good one. I don't think it's perfect, but at least we have some measure of influence in our political system. And so we have an avenue to fight. But listen, the answer is not there. The answer is in our hearts and in our relationship. The issue is not merely political, it's moral. It, has, it, it, it gets to our relationship with God. Uh, I found that in the, uh, out of the I University Press commentary that the author, who is known as James the Just, because he, he was living in in Jerusalem, and he was the bishop of the church of Jerusalem, <clears throat> and so he was surrounded by all of the uh, religious Jews, and so he lived a life that adhered to all of the Old Testament regulations, not because he had to, because he was a Christ follower, but in order so that he could communicate to, to the Jews that lived in his nation. So he lived in such a way that he was, lived so righteously that they actually called him uh, James the Just. And he did that so that he could communicate the gospel. But he was martyred. You know why? Because the religious establishment, the high priest, got sick and tired of him uh, denouncing the behavior of the rich. It was this message that James was martyred for. 
So he was willing to give his life standing up to injustice, especially in the area of being unjust economically. And I think we need to realize, and I want to bring this home. <laughs> Don't have it with me. It's on the floor over there. Take out your cell phone. You say, well, I don't treat people unjustly. You have a cell phone, do you know that the only reason you can use that phone because of people in Africa, children often, or slave labor or underpaid laborers go into mines to mine out special minerals that are absolutely necessary for your cell phone to work? Our conveniences are built on the labor of underpaid and oppressed workers in other nations. And that goes for every electronic gadget you have. And they die in the mines, and we don't even know about it. Or how about when you buy fresh fruit in the grocery store? I'm amazed. I remember when I was young, you couldn't get strawberries year-round or blueberries. I mean, it was like you could get them for a couple of months, and that was it. And now, I mean, like, I like, how in the world do they do this? Middle of winter, and there's blueberries. They're a little more expensive. You know, they're $5 instead of $2. I'm like, it's a miracle. No. It's, it's because there are people in the world breaking their backs for next to nothing. And so when we buy fresh fruit in most grocery stores, unless you go out of your way to find places that sell just uh, produce uh, marketed in a way that's... Uh, held to the highest standards. Uh, it's, it's at the expense of migrant workers that are underpaid or workers in other countries that are working for next to nothing. Or when we purchase clothes, do we, do we ever think about the uh, harsh working conditions in Asia, the sweatshops that children and, and, and women work 12, 14-hour shifts for next to nothing? And so we need to bring this home and not say it's about you rich people out there, but understand it's about us whenever we uh, uh, live in a way that is, is disregarding the benefits we have come at the expense paid by others. And so how can you, how can, how can you respond to that? Okay, I, I'm with you. I, I think about these things and I'm like, well, what do I do? What? So, so some guy had to go into a mine so I could use a clicker, you know? Does that mean I don't use clickers? No. Because you know what? He's probably happy he's got a job. All right? And so we find ways, yes, if you can influence the system, let's all try to influence the system. But learn, again, how to live justly in our own lives, in our own hearts, how we treat the people that we interact with, to live humbly, all right? To pray for those who are oppressed, pray. It's just a matter of somebody getting a better idea to do it better. And thankfully, there's a generation of, of entrepreneurs that want to do it better and, and are finding ways to, to improve the lifestyle of everyone and not just themselves, even though there are plenty that are just concerned with themselves. Educate ourselves about the realities of life outside of our bubble. And realize that, you know, be, be, acknowledge that we do live in a bubble of affluence even if you consider yourself poor. And I love the exhortation from the Old Testament prophet Micah uh, 6.8. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly 
with your God. That's, that's response number one. Make sure in all your interactions you uh, give preference to whoever you're dealing with. That's a way to honor them and, and, and make sure that whenever, whenever you have the opportunity, make sure you live in a way that's just. You don't mistreat anyone and that you stay humble. Stay humble about everything and, um, and acknowledge that we are the wealthy and that means there will be a higher judgment upon us based on how we use the wealth that we have. Happy now? <laughs> it's all right. Because the next, next major section is patience. Patience. And so what do you do when you see injustice? I think we need to be patient. Realize things are not going to change overnight. And uh, as much as we may want it to, it takes time to shift a civilization, a culture. It takes time to move even an individual from one way of living to another. And we need desperately to depend on the power of our Lord Jesus to bring that about. So James uh, 5, 7 through 12 says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must, must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other. There's a good verse to memorize. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just simply say, or say a simple yes or no, so that you will not sin and be condemned. All right, so be patient. And again, this comes uh, following his exhortation about uh, the judgment coming on rich people. So there is, in a sense, he's turning and talking to those who have suffered injustice, and that the response is you need to be patient. And we all need to increase in patience. And it says, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Of course, we know that patience is long-suffering. Patience is not just idle waiting. Is that like being, you know, in a waiting room waiting for your time? You know, when's the nurse going to call me to come in? That means you're a patient. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's the character strength of long-suffering, endurance. Really, it means remaining constant or consistent, not changing, despite suffering the lack of results or reward. Okay, so it's, it's consistent behavior, day in, day out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out. Okay, how can you live a life of patience? And patience is possible because we're waiting on something. What are we waiting for? The end of the pandemic? The Olympics? The Super Bowl? Okay, 
How about going out to eat? Yes. <laughs> I saw a picture. <laughs> so the Zagers in Japan, after, after church, they went out to a restaurant. I was like... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> We're waiting on something much bigger. How can we endure the injustice of life? How can we have patience when we, when we, when we try to do right, but it just doesn't come back? It seems like everything we do fails. How can we have patience? Because we're waiting on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That empowers us to live patiently and justly. Right? Knowing that he is coming. And that when he comes, we can have confidence that all injustice will be dealt with, will be recompensed at Christ's return. Right? This is something that's really important. That when Christ returns, he will deal with every form of injustice. And he, will, he is the judge that is coming. And we all suffer injustice in some form of life, throughout life. But having that confident expectation that Christ will come back and make all things right gives us hope, gives us courage, gives us power to respond correctly even when we're at the receiving end of injustice or to respond with mercy and patience when we see injustice happening in our lives. It's like a farmer who patiently waits for the harvest. We must realize that our patience, our perseverance, our endurance will reap a harvest in the resurrection. All right? So when we live right, it means that we will get a reward. It, but we may have to wait until after this life. It may be not until the resurrection. And he, get, he gets real practical. He says, don't, don't complain. Don't grumble. This can be translated, don't find fault. Uh, don't sigh. <sighs> That's hard. I do that a lot. <laughs> Murmur. Groan. <clears throat> one of the four words I use in my home. <laughs> Don't grumble about one another. See, this is how this brings this big issue of justice and, and, and equity down to how you deal with the person that you're living with or sitting next to. Ah. Or the person in the checkout lane that's taking forever. Or the clerk playing with their cell phone. Sort of checking out me. <laughs> Don't grumble about that. Don't complain. The coming of a judge cuts both ways. We will be defended by those who have done us wrong, but we'll also have to answer for all the wrongs that we have done. And James's warning is very strong uh, that we're, we're, you know, that Christ is coming. But it says there that the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. All right, somehow, when Jesus returns, he's going to deal with all of this. He's going to execute justice in a way uh, that deals with every form of oppression. Yeah. 
but yet not violating his nature of tenderness and mercy. He's the perfect combination and balance of mercy and truth. And, and, and Jesus is going to come, and, and, and we will stand before Jesus. I will stand before Jesus. You will stand before Jesus, both as a victim and as a perpetrator. And answer to him and trust in his mercy to defend us when we were victims and to correct us when we were the perpetrators so that we can have a clear conscience and be completely cleansed when we live in his presence for eternity. Is this making sense? Too many times Christians think that the resurrection is just like some magical incantation that everything just is all of a sudden you're in, you know, a fantasy land. No, each and every one of us, even if we're saved, we're going to heaven, settled. No, we got the ticket. <laughs> but the ticket taker is Jesus. And he's going to look into our eyes, and we're going to have to look into his eyes and give an answer for everything. All right? And I don't know what that's going to be like, but the Bible says some people will get through that as though through fire. Wow. So we stand before him as victim and as perpetrator, both uh, trusting in his mercy. And then he ends with verse 12, it says, but most, most of all, don't take an oath by heaven or anything else. Just say the simple yes or no is that, that you don't sin. This may seem odd, a strange thing to end this section with, but it does fit because uh, the idea of an oath is that you're calling on the gods or fate uh, to, um, to hold you accountable or to be a witness to your intentions. Like you're appealing to some higher power to back up what you're going to say. You're adding a, a level of consequence or uh, vindication upon something you, you promise to do or something you hope will happen to someone else. And, uh, and the way it sometimes, it's not too common, but I think we still do it in our day, you know, may God strike me dead if I don't... You know, or <clears throat> over my dead body, or the childhood version, cross my heart and hope to die. You know, and that's that. That's the kind of old take. It was very common in the first century that if you if you uh, said you were going to do something, you'd tack on to this something that would would supposedly give it more validity, but it actually reduces the validity or the authenticity of your words. Okay. We don't have to make, we don't have to add something to our word to make it something that people should be able to trust. <clears throat> Far better to just simply say yes or to say no and then demonstrate that patient endurance in the face of whatever opposition so that people know when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Or if you say no, you're not going to do it and that you are a person of your word. All right, let's get to the last section, the section on prayer. This is James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. <clears throat> Are any of you suffering hardship? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praise. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sin, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other 
and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is a powerful, powerful dynamic that we, we need to be in a, a faith-filled community that we can confess our sins. That doesn't mean you confess every sin you ever do to somebody, but there is a need often to be open and vulnerable and transparent with others. And the place to, for that is in our community of faith, in the church. And then pray for each other so that we can receive healing and forgiveness. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human just like we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky uh, sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you uh, wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will be saved, will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. So he touches on a few things here. The main thing is prayer. And so we first started out with the issue of justice, then the response of patience, and this concludes the whole letter with a, a section on the importance and the vitality of prayer. Prayer is the proper response to whatever hardship, whatever circumstance, whatever sickness, whatever opposition, whatever you're dealing with, guess what the right thing to do is? Pray. So I'm really glad that there are people, the church of Kalamazoo is uniting in this prayer vigil tomorrow. I encourage you to participate um, as we pray for our nation to get through this current situation. But daily prayer uh, is essential to the life of a Christian. And he focuses in on prayer for sickness uh, in this passage. It's important to note that admitting or confessing that you are sick is in no way lacking faith. Uh, it's actually a prerequisite to healing. And you may say, what are you talking about? Well, I'm actually speaking to some people and there's certain segments within the church and certain teachers that say if you say you're sick, that's evidence that you don't believe that God can heal you. But everyone in Scripture that got healed from a sickness did so because they said, I'm sick. <laughs> they never walked up to Jesus and said, well, I know it looks like I have leprosy. But I'm believing I'm healed. No. They cried out, have mercy on me. All right? So confession of illness and sickness is not a lacking of faith. It's actually prerequisite. It's saying, I have a need, in the same way that we confess sin. It's who we confess it to and who we go to for the healing that is a demonstration of, of our faith. And then consistency. And so if I have a chronic health problem, I, I request chronic prayer. I'm going to keep praying for it. Because until I see these symptoms go away, there's still sickness. And that means the blood of Christ has not yet fully been revealed in my body. And I'm going to believe for healing. And if I have to wait till the resurrection to get it, then I'm going to contend till that day. Yep. Amen? Amen? Thank you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and this verse, of course, is a powerful promise that we can believe that God will heal us. And he says, 
confess uh, your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. So there's a connection here in Scripture and a few other places in Scripture where there is a link between sin and sickness, between forgiveness and healing. All sickness is the result of sin in a general sense, okay? But not all sickness is related to a specific sin. It's the result of living in a world that's under the curse of sin and has been under that curse for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, millennium. Right? And being descendants of people and generation after generation of broken people. And so, uh, in an indirect way, all sickness is the result of sin. Nevertheless, there are times when specific sin is uh, connected to a specific health problem. And uh, doctors actually say that uh, uh, many, many health problems are directly resulted from mental uh, problems, and I would say uh, that overlaps with spiritual uh, things like depression, anxiety, all of those things, as well as indulgence in, in unhealthy behavior produce directly related sickness. So there's a balance here. You don't, you don't say if this person's sick, what's the sin that committed it? That's improper. But when you're praying and when you're praying for others, if there is a particular sin that, that brought about the sickness, then repenting of that sin positions you to receive healing. And that's okay. We can understand. And if there's any way to, to pursue forgiveness and pursue healing, pursue it. Because Christ died on the cross so that we could have access to forgiveness and healing. James tells us that any Christ follower who prays earnestly and is living righteous, and, and, and the word righteous in the New Testament, you always have to understand that that means living in right relationship. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're, you've confessed your sin before the Lord Jesus, you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, and you're following him as, as, a, as, a, as a disciple. So if you're living as a disciple and you're uh, praying earnestly that you have the same access to the power, miraculous power of God as the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So as Christians, we shouldn't think that we have to seek out some, some special individual like it was in the Old Testament where there were only a few people that had connection with God and access to God's power. As Christ, there are people that have a gift of healing, and that's okay, and it's great. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But this verse says that, that the, the earnest prayer of a righteous person, regardless of who they are, has that same access. Every Christian is in Christ. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, we can have the confidence that our prayers will be answered. Because it's coming not from your authority or your righteousness or your sanctification, but from Christ. You're just representing him. You're Christ's body in the earth. So when you pray for someone, this is what you need to do. You need to believe it's not anything up to you. It's turning that request over to Jesus. And, saying, and so as though Jesus himself were standing there praying for this person, you are praying in his, on his behalf. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, is praying on his behalf. And he ends with this encouragement to not give up on those who wander away from the truth. There's so many things in this life, folks, that entice people away from following Christ. 
And uh, I think it's unfortunate that the church, I think especially the modern church, church in America, have um, presented Christianity almost as like a bed of roses, right? Everything's going to be great. When in fact, Christianity is a life of disciplining yourself and hardship and basically wearing a target that the enemy opposes you because the enemy wants to keep you from being a Christ follower. And so we're all enticed and we all face strong temptations to wander either into sin or into unbelief or uh, or into believing something that's not true. And we must remain consistent. This is another application of the principle of patience. Be patient. Be consistent. To win, I love what it says, win them back. And the message uh, is, translates it this way, uh, verse 19 and 20. So my dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Go after them. What does that mean? Go after them in prayer. Go after them in, in relationship. Don't give up on them. And don't, the, the, you don't know the end of the story. And pray that they will encounter God in a way that they can't, they can't refuse. Especially if someone has been uh, in the, uh, the church and, and heard the gospel message. The words are in that person. We can pray that, that God would wake up their spirit to the truth and the, and, the, and the life that's offered through Jesus Christ. Oh, i got to finish this. Get them back, and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. In the message, he uses the word epidemic. We'll just change that to pandemic. <laughs> right now, there's a pandemic of wandering away from God. And how do we respond to that? We live and strive for justice, We practice patience in everything we do, and we continue steadfast in prayer.